Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. We're in week six of the series on Revelation, and I've said it several times. Connie reminded the last time we met that we are people of worship. And so this is a book of worship, the book of Revelation. All 22 chapters are about catching a vision of God and worshiping God. So today we're going to look at chapter four and just a little bit of what we've been up to in recent weeks. We really, we looked at chapters one and two and we saw that it was Jesus moving among his beloved churches. Jesus loves the church. He loved the first century church and these were letters of love to the first century churches. And we only looked at two. We looked at Ephesus, the church that needed to recapture first love. And then Connie talked about the church at Laodicea, the need for them to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and to move from lukewarmness to be white hot in love for God. So today we're going to look at chapter four and it's pretty overwhelming. It is a vision of God on the throne. And next week we'll look at chapter five, which Chris was singing about the lamb. And these are visions. So we've got the opening of Revelation, the first three chapters, Jesus and his love, his affection for the church and his involvement. He's walking among the lampstands and now these visions begin to unroll further. They unfold and so you've got God on the throne. And as Claire was saying, this is the most real reality behind all things. And I think if we could go back to the first century and interview people, what got you through the hard times? What was it that enabled you to look at persecution, to look at the emperor Domitian and say, Jesus Christ is Lord? And even in the face of a threat, well, you will die for saying that. Jesus Christ is Lord. My life is his. What was it that got those people through? It was a vision of God. It was a vision of God. That's it. And so as we look at this today, I want to say not only for the first century believers, but for us, what is it that gets you and me through the most difficult things? It is a vision of the glory, the majesty, the sovereignty of God. And at times you may hold on by your fingernails to that vision, but I'm inviting us this morning to meditate on Revelation 4 and to cultivate a vision of this God who is on a throne with his son enthroned at his side and catching a vision of this will change us and will empower us to get through anything that might face us. Why don't we read it here and let's stand. Again, there's a blessing on those who read, who hear.
the words of this prophecy, Revelation 4, 1 to 11. After this, this is John, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne. And I want us to just read this so that you can read it, but also picture it in your mind, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald, a green emerald rainbow. And around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes and golden crowns on their heads. And coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal, around the throne. And on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night without ceasing, they sing, holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So there is a lot going on here. And again, I'm inviting us, like we do each Sunday, we have a text and we read it and we kind of meditate together through the passage together. What do I mean by meditate? We prayerfully read it. We'll talk more about this, but this chapter was designed for that. It was designed for those first century Christians to read it aloud and then to pray about it and then to go out and live in light of the revelation of this. So today, what I want to do is simply walk through and look at some of the key features of this chapter. And the first one is found there, and it's a door. In chapter 1, John is in this visionary state, and he sees, doesn't explain how that is, but the rest of the Bible gives examples. He sees a door open in heaven. He sees into those heavenly places I mentioned, Ephesians 2, 6, where we are seated with Christ, and he hears an invitation What's the text say? He hears a voice. Come up here, John, and see what must take place 
That is, come up here and see what God has intended, what God has planned, that most certainly will happen. One commentator, and again, I read these commentators because they've devoted their lives to studying and praying and living these texts, but a guy named Greg Beal says this, like the Old Testament prophets, John is commissioned and called as a prophet by being summoned into the secret heavenly council of the Lord. That's what's happening here. And in his prophetic role, he is to go back and communicate God's hidden purpose to God's people and tell them what part they are to have in carrying it out. So John is invited. He sees this door. And as we've said up front, each of the visions are highly symbolic. Would you agree that as we read that, it is chock full of symbolism, so much so that you're Circuits are blown. What does this mean? Well, in short, it means God is on the throne. And there's all kinds of Old Testament symbolism that John is drawing from because he's a Hebrew Christian and his mind and heart are absolutely saturated in the word of God. So, of course, as he's encountering God, he's in the Holy Spirit, his imagination has been filled and purified and imbued with these pictures. But really, that is the essence of what's being communicated here. It's difficult to determine the timing of these visions. We've said each week that the, the word, the letter, was for the first century believers, right, who were facing difficult times with an empire and an emperor looking to squash them. But it's also a timeless word that speaks to us. We'll be talking more about that in the coming weeks. I want us to think about this, though. Sometimes we read the Bible, and we think, man, that is cool. John got to experience that. He was a prophet. He was a New Testament prophet. But friends, you are a prophetic people. If you're a Christian, does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Yes. The same Spirit, when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, or I was in the Spirit that same Holy Spirit lives in you and me and broods over us. And so, yes, John, as an apostle, held a unique place, but I think the text is suggesting, church, why don't you look up? Why don't you learn to get in the Spirit? Throw your sails up, worship together, and expect God to speak through his word and through visions. So that invitation is for all of us, and we have deep appreciation for what John is telling us here. But the Lord wants to continue to speak and invite all of us into heaven. Bethany is about to come out of her chair here. She's someone that knows what it means to get in the Spirit. If you don't know Bethany, she is a Holy Spirit treadmill person, apparently. So she has a treadmill down in the basement. She gets on that treadmill worships, prays in tongues, oftentimes loudly, and the Lord speaks to her. She gets in the spirit on the treadmill. Isn't that right? So there's an invitation here that the text speaks about. A second thing is there's a throne, and this is really the centerpiece of the whole passage, a throne of God Almighty. And John says at verse 2, look at it. At once I was in the spirit, 
and there in heaven stood a throne and one seated on a throne. Now you'll notice John does not come out and say, the one on the throne looks exactly like this and I looked into his face and I saw, that doesn't happen, does it? Again, John is Jewish. And so in the Jewish scriptures, in the Old Testament, everyone was very careful to not try to over-describe God because you can't. Even if you catch a glimpse like he is, there's a throne and there's one seated on the throne, he cannot fully contain and comprehend what he's seeing. You see it? So there's mystery around this. As a matter of fact, we'll see in a minute, it has to almost come through a prism. And that's why these stones are mentioned. So God is so mind-blowing and beyond the human intellect that John is barely catching a glimpse. And scripture says that God makes heaven his throne in Isaiah 66, 1. And 1 Kings 8, 27 says that not even the expanse of heaven can contain God. And so this idea that there is a throne, yes, there is a throne in heaven, but God is so much bigger than anything we can quantify or imagine. And John is allowed to enter into this throne room, isn't he? And there's Old Testament background, for, like there is for every passage, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7. And John gets to momentarily look upon the throne. The word throne is mentioned 40 times in the book of Revelation. So do you think that's important? The message of Revelation is God is on his throne. And the lamb is there with him. Jesus is king. God rules through his Messiah, his king, Jesus. That's the whole message. So you wouldn't be surprised to find the word throne mentioned 40 times. And this is at the center of John's vision here. God rules and reigns over all people. It's a timely word for us right now, isn't it? God is on his throne. But don't you see what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening politically? Don't you see what's going on with sickness and disease? Don't you see what's happening in the American context? God's on his throne. Amen? God is on his throne, and he never sweats. He doesn't wring his hands. He has ruled. He is ruling now, and we are his people, and it's a great time to be a Christian, and it's a great time to share the good news of the gospel with other people. What's interesting, we're going to find in the rest of the letter of Revelation, and hear me on this, everything comes down to how do you respond to the one on the throne. So this revelation happens in chapter 4, and then in 5 we see that the mysterious God is personified in a person, Jesus, the Lamb, and the human race for all time will be judged on how they respond to the sovereignty of God. So this is a very important thing for us to sit with. God is on his throne. He rules and reigns in majesty. What does scripture say about his throne? It's a throne of holiness and majesty and righteousness. But Hebrews 4, what does it say? We approach what? the throne of grace. 
So God in his infinitely beautiful character is awesome and not someone that we deal with lightly. Jesus is our friend, but this is the sovereign God of the universe, and we have to rediscover the fear of the Lord. He is awesome. He is majestic. But at the same time, it is a throne of grace. What is this about when it talks about jasper and carnelian and a rainbow? The point is that God's beautiful and that God can be seen in and through the things that he's made. And so these are the equivalent of modern-day diamonds. And so John, in this vision, is saying God is so majestic, so holy, so beautiful, so stunning, that the greatest of diamonds surround him, and they reflect his splendor, his glory. And yes, they had particular colors, and there's all kinds of theories on what this could mean. Some people point out that these individual stones were on the priestly breastplate. So when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, these were the very stones on the breastplate. And that may be something that the text is suggesting here. But I like to see them really as kind of a prism, P-R-I-S-M, a prism through which the glory of God is radiating. And of course, what do you think of when you hear a rainbow in the Old Testament? We think of Genesis 9, Noah. And so the text seems to be saying that surrounding God in his majesty and holiness is his mercy. That even if and when judgment and discipline comes to the nations, that God is merciful. And that he always is committed to recreating and restoring. And that's what the text is saying here because we're going to read in subsequent chapters some pretty heavy stuff that God does discipline the nations, that God does discipline and purify his church. But if we have this vision in our minds that he is majestic and he's merciful at the same time, it's a wonderful thing. The third thing that we find, look at verse 4. Again, we're meditating through this. And I do this deliberately because we're a people of the book. And so if on Sundays we do things that are immensely practical, then you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday in all the busyness of life can do what we do together. So we open our Bible. We read through it. We look to the Lord to give us insight. We pray it. And we may even use some resources to help us, but this is it. This is part of being a people of the book. We walk through passages together and we lift up our eyes and worship because the whole point of it is not to gain knowledge, but to have our hearts enthralled and filled with love and affection for God. It's what you're created for. So this is kind of practice when we get together on Sundays. Verse four, there's 24 thrones and elders. And again, there's different views on this. Some say that it's angels. These 24 elders are a high-level angelic order, and they would say, well, the rest of the passage, chapter 4, is about these six-winged creatures, and so these would, by suggestion, also be angels. 
I like the idea because I don't like it. I find it compelling. The rest of the book seems to suggest that 12 and 12 equals 24. 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. 12 leaders in faith. And the 12 apostles. And so these are representatives of the people of God. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints who are with the Lord in glory. And what do they do? They worship. So it's a picture of what God's people have done throughout time, throughout history. And I find that compelling because later on in the book in Revelation 21, the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates of this new city that are coming down, that's coming down, and the 12 apostles are the foundation. So again, the point, the big picture, we can get lost in the weeds, but the point is God's people worship him. They always have, and they always will, and there's a representative worshipers there in heaven now. A fourth thing, phenomena. Say phenomena. 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 There's things happening. What's phenomena? Stuff happening. Kids, can you say that? Stuff happening. There are things happening around the throne. There's lightning. There's rumblings. There's thunder. There's seven flaming torches. All of this, again, evokes pictures of God in the Old Testament. When God showed up, things happened. The natural world would respond when God appeared. We've mentioned this before, but they were called theophanies, appearances of God. The burning bush, Exodus 3, God appears and blazing fire is there. These are key moments where God is revealed. And we'll see more of them as the book unfolds. Seven flaming torches. Do you remember weeks ago, pre-blizzard, we encountered other fire in the presence of God, the blazing lampstands. And so this is kind of the flip side of that. The seven candlesticks that Christ is walking among are the churches, right? Well, what burns brightly in the life of the church? What is the fire of the church? Acts 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. And so the text is symbolizing using that Old Testament language to say that the church is illumined and filled with the fiery one, the Holy Spirit. And there's seven of them. Man, this is like opening those Russian nesting dolls. Anyone feel that? It's like, man, awesome, I'm getting close. I open it up, and then you open the next one, and you open the next one, and like 10 layers later, you're at the little small one. Reading Revelation is like that. Do you feel it? It is a meditation on the majesty of God. And so we're taking one of those and opening it up and we're like, wow, that's awesome. But it's even more mind-blowing looking at this. And so really the point of that is this is a Trinitarian vision. We'll see God the Father. We'll see the Lamb at his side. And there in the presence of God is the invisible Lord, the Holy Spirit, who burns like fire among his people, and it's awesome. The seven spirits of God, we encountered that in chapter one, verse four. You can look at this, but I'm just gonna reference it. The seven spirits of God, it's one spirit, 
right? But seven aspects. And again, in order to understand this, we have to think like a first century Jew, first century Jewish Christian in order to to make some sense of it. But in Isaiah 11, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah and he says, when the Messiah comes, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so there's a description of the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit in Messiah who we're gonna meet in chapter five. And that's what John is seeing in a very mysterious symbolic way the presence and power of the Holy Spirit right in the thick of this vision of the enthroned God. And the section ends here with a sea of glass, like crystal. And again, you've got people reading this for a couple thousand years, commenting and praying and searching the scriptures. And I think that this is suggesting a few things. One is God is different than us. There is a separation. Just like when you read in Genesis 1-7, there was a firmament, a, a separation between the heavens and the earth. I think the text is conjuring that up and saying God is separate. He's distinct. He is holy. He transcends. He is heavenly and we're earthly. And so that sea of glass represents that. Also, if you search the scriptures, you see that oftentimes tumultuous bodies of water, the seas churning, Psalm 46, things like that, represents the nations in turmoil, right? And so what the text is saying here is that there's no turmoil in the presence of God. There are no churning oceans or seas. It's placid and it's peaceful. And God rules and reigns as the transcendent one over all the nations, over all the potential turmoil. Friends, I like this stuff. I like to look at this and get lost in it, and so I hope you do too. It also suggests the Red Sea. What happened? The Red Sea was parted and became, it was exciting, and then it calmed, and so I think What the text is saying here as well is that there's a new exodus happening, that Christ has initiated a new exodus, and we're going to see more of that next week. A fifth thing here as we move closer to the end of this series of Russian nesting dolls that open up, there's four living creatures This is where it gets particularly mind-blowing. Why don't we do this, okay? I want us to take one minute. This is, there's so much here, so many layers, and I want us to take a minute, and you can either space out or chat with the person next to you or meditate on this, and we're gonna take one minute, and I'll come back, okay? Because I do, I don't wanna overlook these last two pieces here. All right, so take one minute to let your mind recoup here.
might seem a little peculiar to stop in the middle of it, but that's okay, right? We're here to learn and do deep dives into God. Because there's, I'm telling you right now, there's nothing more fascinating. And you young people have said this before, but give yourself to it. Nothing more interesting and fascinating and satisfying than the revelation of God. So I talked to my son who it looks, took a little break here, said, hey bro, you're never too young. Learn to be with the Lord, learn to read the Bible. Even if it's just a couple minutes a day, give yourself to it. It's the most fascinating, satisfying thing you can do. And so really this speaks to that. This passage is fascinating and satisfying in the revelation of God. So we've got these four living creatures at verses six and seven here. And the point of these living creatures is this. They are the closest in proximity to the throne. And they are the ones absolutely enthralled with the majesty of God. They worship God day and night. What's this business of them being full of eyes and front behind? They are created to contemplate and look on the glory of God and to be like sentinels or watchmen around the throne of God. I know it's interesting symbolism. Some of the early church fathers thought this, and I don't necessarily agree, but they thought that the four descriptions here, the lion, if you look down at verse 7, the ox, the human face, and the flying eagle represented the four facets of Christ's character in the Gospels. Matthew was the lion of Judah. Mark, the ox, the servant who came to give his life. Luke, the perfect human who gave his life as a sacrifice. And John, the eagle, the word who came from heaven. It's beautiful. Don't think it's necessarily compelling. I think what the text is saying here is that each one of these creatures represents a facet of creation. And so all of creation in this vision is worshiping God. Each one represents the head of its species, and God rules over all of them. So we look here at the last two things. Verse 8, there's worship. And really, this is the crux of the whole passage. So I know this is incredibly rich, and certain Sundays we just can't skip over stuff that is too good, so we got to linger with it. There's worship happening by the creatures and worship happening by the elders. Just want to make a few observations because this is important. This was given to the church to show them God and to show them how to worship. If you notice here, there's seven hymns through the whole book of Revelation, but what are they declaring? Day and night. They are fixated. They are centered on the glory of God the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God. And so really what we're seeing here is a biblical vision of worship. And friends, biblical worship is absolutely God-centered. It's God-intoxicated. What does the text say? They're singing about God. They're singing to God. They can't get enough of it. They've got loads of eyes to contemplate and look on the beauty of God. And it becomes a representation of what we're invited into. The point of 
holy, holy, holy. It's ta- have you heard that somewhere else? Where else have you heard that? Isaiah 6, Isaiah had a vision, and so John is caught up in a similar vision, emphasizing three times the holiness of God. He is the Lord God, the Almighty, the absolute sovereign, who was and is and is to come. He's the I am who appeared to Moses, and he is the one who will be. He's coming again in his son, Christ Jesus. Let's end with this, verses 9 through 11, the worship by the elders. I invite you this week, hang out with chapter four a little bit. If it doesn't change your perspective a little bit, give you some insight on prayer and worship, I'd be very surprised. I've been caught up in it all week in the the snow, the blizzard. It's been a good place to get lost in God. These living creatures and 24 elders They're joining together, praising God, singing to God about God for who he is and what he does. They give him glory and honor and thanks. Look at these verbs here. We'll end with this. What kinds of things do these elders do as representatives of God's people? What are the verbs here? You tell me. How do they worship They fall, right? There's a physical nature to this. They fall, they worship, they cast their crowns, and they sing. These sounds like, these sound like things that we can glean from. What's the deal with casting their crowns down? In the ancient world, lesser kings would enter into the presence of the emperor or the greater kings. They were called vassal kings, and they would come into the presence and they would take their crown off as a sign that my authority comes from you and your authority is greater than mine and I kneel before you. And so that's what the elders are doing. In worship, we come and kneel before God. We acknowledge all authority is from him, all goodness, all gifts, and we kneel before him. As a matter of fact, some people think that some of the things that were spoken in this vision our Lord and our God, believe it or not, they said that to the emperor in the first century. People that were subjecting themselves to the state would call the emperor our Lord and our God. And so what John is saying here in this text, he's subverting the idea of the state ruling over God's people. And he's saying, we have one Lord and one God. It's the Almighty. It's Yahweh.